You all ready to join me today in our trip to outer space? Yeah. Albert Shivers. The Matrix doesn't happen. That's very true. Come along quietly or not. They don't have to like it, but they're going to see what happens. Goodbye, wimps. And now, without further ado, from Albert Shivers. The general concept is that creativity flourishes in in an atmosphere of freedom. I like Albert, and the others are okay, but I really want to go home. Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of the Planet Shivers podcast. I know it's been a while since the last podcast came out, but I'm back now. There's been a whole lot of crap going on. I'm not even on Planet Shivers. I'm on another planet right now, standing next to a Harley Davidson in a garage. I don't even have my microphone. I'm recording this crap on my cell phone. Why? Because the birds got to fly. Anyway, this is going to be a good episode coming up. First of all, Luke and Andrew are back on the show. We're going to talk Hollywood legends and a little bit of conspiracy to do with movies and such, as well as... Other little underground things that have happened in front of the camera and behind the scenes. I hope you enjoy that. Second of all, my short film, Mando Alberto, is going to be coming out. I've been editing this whole time, and I'm excited for anybody who wants to see it to finally see it. I want to explain a little bit to you what it is. First off, it is a collage film, very artsy stuff. I use clips from TV shows, movies, music videos, all sorts of different things combined with old home movies and original footage I shot in the time span of 2016 to now. That's when I started this germ of an idea back in 2016. So all these years I've been futzing with it, putting it down, picking it up, putting it on the shelf, taking it down, messing with it for a whole week and then leaving it alone for a whole month. So it's a, it's a cumulative project that is a result of all this time that has passed and all that's happened to me from then to now. Also, I'm going to be having a couple of art shows coming up. I'll put any of that information in the description. Some shows in New York, some shows here in Pennsylvania. I'm spreading out. The next stop, the world. Um, other than that, that's about all the news I'm going to hit you with now. I don't want to waste any more time. I want to get to my conversation with Luke and Andrew. I hope you enjoy it and keep your eyes peeled. I'm going to be pumping out podcasts now. So look out and I'll catch you on the other end. Come and eat at Alberta's Pizzeria. The only place for authentic Italian Jewish cuisine. Home of the only Grandma Yetta Pie. The best kosher pie this side of the wedding wall. Plus, we cater birthdays, sweet 16, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, baptisms for the goys, and we offer free sausage topping for any bris. Alberta's Pizzeria. Pizza you'll want to eat everywhere. Alright folks, welcome to another episode of the Planet Shivers Podcast. Andrew and Luke are back again to talk about Hollywood legends and folklore. We're going to go down all sorts of rabbit holes in this episode. And we're going to start off with cursed movies. So let's dive into that and talk, let's first go into what what a cursed movie can be, and then we'll give some specific examples. So these are things that have happened and occurred during productions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm going to start with uh, The Omen, which is you know, one of the most critically acclaimed horror movies of all time. It's one of the few horror movies that won an Oscar for uh, uh, Best Original Score by Jerry Goldsmith. So... Apparently, during the, uh, at one point, uh, either before or during production, uh, star Gregory Peck was supposed to be on a flight, and he missed it. That flight ended up getting struck, but struck by lightning, I think, and crashing, and everybody on board was killed. And not long after filming, uh, in the movie, there's an infamous scene where a character, um, a photographer played by David Warner, gets decapitated by a falling sheet of glass. It's one of the most iconic images of the movie. 
not long after filming, uh, one of the production designers, I think it may have been the special effects director, uh, was driving somewhere, and his girlfriend was sitting in the passenger seat, and they passed a sign, supposedly, a sign that said, uh, O Men, like O hyphen Men, like, the, like that was the name of the town, 66.6 miles, i.e. E. the number of the beast, 666. Mm -hmm. The car crashed. The driver, the, this special effects guy, I think that's who it was, survived, but his girlfriend got decapitated just like David Warner got decapitated in the movie. And this, of course, has led to speculation for years as to whether or not there were evil spirits haunting the set because they dared to make a movie about the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there are... Uh, 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 going back to you know, you know, talking about films that had accidents that happened on set. The uh, uh, probably one of the most horrific accidents, and uh, you know one of the uh, uh, in I think that I, I consider it in the history of Hollywood in the history of film was uh, on the fi uh, film uh, the Twilight Zone. Uh, the uh, when the uh, uh, the actor and two children, uh, a uh, helicopter accident uh, led to the death of an actor and uh, two children in that uh, film. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, they were doing a scene in a, uh, that was supposed to take place in a Vietnam uh, village, and uh, the man, uh, the actor was supposed to act like he's saving these two children and a uh, helicopter was uh, hovering above but there was also a storm going on at the same time the helicopter crashed and uh, killed uh, all three of them instantly uh, as uh, some say you know it's uh, you know uh, from the title the Twilight Zone uh, uh, had to do something like uh, had to do with that uh, you know, and uh, sometimes it's uh, not just films there it's uh, been said that uh, the uh, role of uh, Superman has been cursed yes because until recently a lot of actors you know several actors who played Superman let met untimely demises so the first one was George Reeves in the old uh, black and white TV show mm -hmm. Um, his death to this day remains one of the most infamous unsolved mysteries of all time. They still don't know if it was suicide or if his second wife killed him intentionally or if they got into a fight and he got shot by mistake. Nobody knows for sure. It has been investigated to death. No, everybody's a you know, member of different camps. They even made a movie about it. Uh, Hollywood Land. Hollywood Land, where George Reeves was played by uh, Ben Affleck. Yeah. And they... The movie actually shows uh, flashback scenes depicting how it may have turned out, and based on the information presented, all three of them seem equally plausible. There, there, there are some people who believe is he was uh, uh, killed by the mafia. It's uh, there's uh, a huge, wide range of uh, of uh, theories. Uh, Involving his death, yeah, and then Christopher Reeve, you know, played the role in the movies, and then he was the one who ended up getting, you know, a broken neck and paralyzed from the neck down in a horse riding accident, and then, you know, of course, he ended up dying young. Um, that wasn't the the baby who uh, who played the young uh, Clark Kent uh, in the original film, didn't he? Uh, I think I heard where he uh, passed away of. Uh, uh, just uh, pneumonia. Jeez, oh, it's possible. I I hadn't even heard of that one, but maybe it's true. Uh, um, then uh, then you have uh, the the curse of uh, Bruce Lee and uh, his son Brandon Lee. Uh, yes, they both died after mate died during the filming of their. Well, Bruce died right after finishing his fifth movie, and and Brandon died during the filming of his fifth movie. Hmm. Um, for completely unrelated reasons, but you know, but of course, you know, everybody you know, has you know, people still speculate as to why, 
and if, if and they were so afraid that they actually tried to because his daughter Shannon Lee was also an actress. I don't know if she's still acting today, but when she was actually working on her fifth movie, everybody was like, "No, don't do it. It's like a family curse." She survived thankfully, but yeah. you know, but everybody was afraid that the family had a curse that once you make movie number five, you're dead. Right. And what was the deal with uh, the filming of The Exorcist? Supposedly, there was a, a lot of horrible things happening on the set or to one person on the set, and they actually brought a real priest on set to perform an exorcism. I, I foolishly didn't look up uh, more details. In, I just, as to who and what, where and when and why, but I do know that people said that there was an actual exorcism performed on set during the filming of that movie. Wow. During... Um Around the same time in the 70s, there was a movie called The Devil's Reign. With, um, it was actually, talking about star power, it was J- John Travolta's first on-screen appearance mm-hmm. as an extra who just got thrown down a flight of stairs. But um, it starred Ernest Borgnine and the actor from Green Acres, the lead actor from the TV show Green Acres. Mm-hmm. I forget his name. But uh, Ernest Borgnine played Satan, and by the end of the movie was so wigged out by his own acting that he had to like take a break for a little while because this the he poured himself into it so much that he almost like he scared himself <laughs> and had to take a breather. Oh yeah, instances like that happen all the time where. Uh, an actor will just get so much into a role that they'll uh, that that they'll uh, live as a, and not necessarily method acting. Uh, the first uh, uh, instance that comes to my mind is uh, Bob Hoskins in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes, he was uh, uh, spent so much time because he was working with cartoon characters. Obviously, the cartoons characters weren't there well after filming uh he that there it was that he would still be be, uh have had issues talking to himself Mm. uh uh and uh and uh even uh that even happened to michael jordan doing uh the film space jam yeah and of course, it does happen to method actors too. Uh, Jack Palance played Dracula in a made-for-TV version in '74, and the movie was a big enough hit that you know the studio asked him to do a sequel, and he said no because he felt that he was becoming Dracula too much, mm-hmm. and he and it terrified him, so he backed out. Um, yeah. So, and then of course, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously, not everybody. You know, fears this as much, but you know, since film is is does have its roots in live theater, people are afraid of uh, the Scott the uh, Scottish play Macbeth, mm-hmm. and you know that's you know there are all kinds of legends of all the horrible things that happened for as long as that play has been produced live. So naturally, people are afraid to even say that name, you know, the name of the show. Mm-hmm. They call it, hence why they call it the Scottish play. So naturally, they're probably just as afraid to do it on a movie set. Or, you know, or to even, you know, to, you know, so whenever somebody actually makes a movie about, you know, Macbeth and nobody dies, that's considered a miracle. Hmm. And what, I wanted to bring it up, I'm sure we've covered it before, but it has to be a while ago now. Um, The legend or the folklore of the Lon Chaney bench. Is it a bench? I, or am I, I thinking of the wrong actor? Describe the story more, maybe. That um, because I because the ghost of Lon Chaney has been seen multiple times, sitting on this particular bench, in some Hollywood studio. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I uh, because uh, yeah, because Lon Chaney was the front runner for uh, the role, but uh, he died and Dracula. he couldn't get it. And Bela Lugosi. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, 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 and he's been, uh, it was believed that it, because it was going to take place at that certain studio, he now sits at this bench. 
uh, of his studio. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you just reminded me another one as far as ghosts and front runners for roles. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Mommy Dearest, which is one of the most uh, divisive movies of all time, people either love it or hate it. Uh, Faye Dunaway accepted the role because it was a biopic of um, uh, what's it, Joan Crawford, mm-hmm. and you know she method acted to the point that she almost collapsed, you know, from all the yelling that she did on set and everything. And she ended up getting a Razzie Award for Worst Actress. Mm-hmm. And she blames the director, saying, you know, because movies, unlike theater where you do everything in chronological order, in film you do everything. You, know, you have a script supervisor like, okay, we have access to this set on these mm-hmm. days, so we'll film every scene that takes place on this set in whatever order is most convenient. And when you do that, you really need a director to help you keep track. No, no, no. Uh, we'll, we'll do everything on a scale of 1 to 10. So... Uh, today you're you're angry, but bring it down to like a five because then we're going to do this other scene where you have to be more angry and then you'll bring it up to an eight. Instead, she did like a ten for like everything oh, okay. because oh. they didn't have her because the director wasn't like, no, no, no. The, here you're trying to kill your daughter like by trying to strangle her. Uh, so you know, that scene is when you should be like, here you're just yelling at her. Bring it down a little bit so it doesn't look like you're flatlining it. Well, anyhow, she even... You know, not only did the movie get bashed, but Dunaway said that she was actually haunted by the ghost of Joan Crawford, probably criticizing her for playing the role so badly. And when Crawford's uh, daughter, uh, her adopted daughter, saw the movie, she's you know, you know, bearing in mind that it was based on her book. Mm-hmm. You know, it was her book, you know, denouncing what a horrible person her mother was. She said, you know, Dunaway said she was haunted by my mother. And now that I've seen the movie, I'm not a bit surprised, like, <laughs> because she was so unimpressed with the performance. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, well, because you know, the, and then there are movies that people will say that was cursed, but really it was just a horrible filming experience. Like, uh, like they say about about the film The Shining. Yeah. Uh. uh, uh uh, with uh, everything that went on behind the scenes with that, with uh, the lead actress and the director. Oh, yeah. yeah it was, Stanley Kubrick was, of course, a horrible human being, but he, uh, conversely, he he was so gentle with the boy playing Danny. Like, he was, he said, I don't even want this kid to know he's in a horror movie, so don't show, don't let him actually see any of the scary things. I'll just direct him to act scared. But on the other hand, when he was working with Shelley Duvall, he would, there was one scene where he made her do like 127 takes, and he was yelling at her so much that her hair started falling out. Mm-hmm. And um, Jack Nicholson hated working on that movie so much that ten, I think like 10 years later when they asked him to play uh, the writer Paul in Misery, Misery, which was also based on a Stephen King story, mm-hmm. even though it had a completely di- different director who was probably not nearly as bad to work with. He's like, uh, I'm not doing another Stephen King movie. No thanks. So what made Kubrick so so difficult to work with? Uh, I think what I think it was is that the man was very bad. At, he wasn't an actor's director. He had a very specific vision, and he didn't know how to, how to communicate that vision to his actors. So he did the... Yeah, you know, the next best thing, and but which is a horrible thing, and just made them do takes after takes after takes until he got the performance he wanted, and he had he would do it to the point where he had these old veterans like breaking down in tears, like what do you want? What do you want me to do differently? And he was and he and all he could say was just do another take, and you know because he couldn't specify, you know what. He what he wanted. Yeah, what he wanted, what objective to chase, or, or what tone he wanted to go for. Or, no, I want you to play off this other actor, or I want you to change your motivation a little bit, or you're, you're being too intense here, I want you to bring it down. He didn't know how to articulate what he wanted, so he would just make them do takes and hope that they would experiment and try everything until, mm. he, until they gave what he wanted. Well, my favorite... Uh, uh, and... I don't know if this is true or not, but uh, when, uh, when he did Spartacus, yeah, I, I heard, uh, uh, well, uh, Kirk Douglas, you know, was not only the lead actor, but he, uh, I, it was also a producer, mm-hmm. and uh, he would 
be taking the script for rewrites constantly to Dalton Trumbo, uh, who, <laughs> who, was, who was actually uh, blacklisted at the time. And, uh, and uh, uh, Trumbo would say to Kirk Douglas, another rewrite? And he said, uh, uh, unfortunately, because I've never had a director who was a bigger pain in my ass than Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, one, one of the few t- instances of an actor standing up to Kubrick and getting away with it, and it's not from an actor you would expect, you know, cause somebody who absolutely did not have star power at the time, a young David Prowse, who's best known for playing Darth Vader in okay. costume, uh, when they did uh, uh, A Clockwork Orange, uh, Prowse plays you know this bodybuilder assistant to this guy who gets uh, to this writer who gets paralyzed from the waist down. This guy that um, Malcolm McDowell's character assaulted and really hurt earlier in the film. There's a scene where Prowse, you know, this bodybuilder has to carry this guy in a wheelchair down a flight of steps. And you know he heard about Kubrick's reputation, and he's thinking, he's like, like I'm a strong guy, but I don't want to get a hernia." So he looked, he actually looked at Kubrick, and he said, "How many takes are you going to make me do? You know, you're not exactly one take, Kubrick." And everybody on set like went dead silent, went like, "Oh my God, Kubrick's going to kill him!" And Kubrick shockingly laughed and said, "Don't worry, I won't make you do more than three takes." <laughs> Thankfully, he didn't. But yeah. Uh, the the thing, then you hear that about him, and because you know, you you know the horror stories about him, but then you hear stories about directors that you admire, and then it just breaks your heart when you hear it. Like the, the, I I I just want to the the thing that really uh, hurt me because I you know admired his I I still do admire his film work. But I just I've lost I've lost my admiration for him, Alfred Hitchcock. Yes, okay. because of, bring him up because of the birds. Yeah, well, because of birds and because of Psycho, I I think you know, uh, the actress who uh, you know, was stabbed in the tub or, or stabbed in the shower. Yeah, I, she uh, said uh, 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 she she couldn't even take showers anymore after that because. He actually went and uh, did the stunt, like act, like was stab, trying to stab at her mm-hmm. at, at one point, uh, and it, uh, uh, during during the filming of Psycho, then uh, with the instance with birds. Yeah, he he actually had uh, Tippy Hedren. You know, he wrote in this. He wrote in this scene where she goes up to the attic to to investigate something, which you know supposedly even had no bearing on the plot like he was just looking for an excuse to torture her and he had her like up in this attic for like five days straight just sending real birds to attack her because you know with the special effects technology they had at the time they couldn't do cgi or puppets would have looked really fake or anything so mm-hmm. he just put her up in there and just kept filming her fighting these birds and getting you know bit and clawed to death and um and so, you know, the rumor, we don't know, you know, we've heard different versions of whether or not this is true. Some say it was because he was one of those perverts who would only cast lead actresses if they agreed to sleep with him and she re- you know, refused to sleep with him. So he's like, okay, I'm going to, okay, I'll cast you, but I'm going to make you regret not giving me what I want. And that's why he tortured her. That, that, that's another, because it, uh, it, it's believed that or if... They didn't uh, sleep with him, or if they didn't do what he wanted, he would kill their career. Yes. I, uh, you know, we talk about star power and, you know, uh, you know, you know, flexing that uh, muscle. Uh, he would, you know, you you do what I say, or you're never heard from again. And in that case, that was definitely true. Like I think they did the birds, and then Marnie, I think, mm-hmm. which I haven't seen yet. And then that was pretty much the highlight of her, of Tippi Hedren's career. Like she's kept working, but she never did anything of of nearly as the kind of notoriety that she did in, you know when she worked with him. Oh yeah, and even the instance where he uh, blamed uh, uh, Vertigo's poor box office because of Jimmy Stewart's age. Yeah, mm. uh, that just 
With, yeah, which is even more ironic because in the very next film he cast Car- you know, Cary Grant, who is even older than than Stewart, but he, but he felt that Grant looked younger, so he gave him the part. But yeah, I like this. I still admire his his films, right. yeah. but the, the man yeah. not as much. Yeah. yeah, it's hard, and this this is a probably a whole another topic, but there are times, especially. The way we tend to dive into movies and things like that, it can be tough when you run into that crossroad of separating the artist from the art. Yes. You know, so we can you know we can enjoy a Hitchcock movie, but uh, you know there's like that other thing about it. Yes, there there are a lot of directors who made great movies who, but that you find out were horrible people like. Um, not just Hedgecock, but also uh, Fritz Lang, you know, who directed Metropolis, which is like the most yeah. groundbreaking sci-fi movie ever. And he directed M, which was the first major serial killer movie. Mm-hmm. But he was apparently a really horrible person. He mistreated his actors and supposedly nearly killed a lot of actors just to film a shot in one of his movies. Uh, Michael Curtis, who directed uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood and Casablanca, mm-hmm. I... I forget the details, but I think during Casablanca, I think he technically should have been in jail for murder. And they said he was miserable to work with on set. He was one of those directors who said, uh, lunch breaks are for bums. The, the, you know, the actors all hated him and never wanted to work with him again after that. It's like, well, I still love that movie, but I wouldn't. But if I met a director like that, it's like, I'd be asking myself, is is the finished product worth this misery? Mm-hmm. You know, is it worth my life? Is it worth my sanity? You know, is it worth you know my coworkers' health and sanity? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is. It, it can be a quite the crossroads um, when you find out something about you know somebody that you admire their work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it turns out not to be so great. Yeah. Oh. Uh, uh, I, uh, yeah, you know, you hear, you, know, you hear about that with, uh, you know, one, one of the actors that, uh, I, I love, uh, uh, Henry Fonda, uh, you know, but then you hear about, you know, uh, a great actor, but he, his personal life was just awful. He's just, you know, uh, you know, you hear stories about, uh, his wife and, or, or his wives and, uh, you know, uh, you know, situation where right after his wife died, uh, he married, uh, you know, a, another woman. Like right after a funeral, uh, uh, uh you, know, you have uh, like uh, Bing Crosby, who I uh, I love his music. I love his films. Uh, but uh. Yeah, you hear stories like about him abusing his children, mm-hmm. uh, and and there's uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, and you know, you, you you know you don't want you know, even you know uh, you know Frank Sinatra you know uh, I you know love his music love his movies but you know he the man was married with four or five times and uh uh to you know in uh he would you know you know uh married Ava Gardner you know you know uh then you know said that she was the love of his love of his life still cheated on her with groupies I mean uh you know it's just I think you know when when you think about things like marriage especially going back to the golden era like some of those guys you know, and women too. You know, you think about uh, Liz, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them, I just think, were not marriage material. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's why, you know, people say about Leonardo DiCaprio, oh, he's so good looking, he's so handsome. Uh, he, he sh- uh, why, why isn't he married? Why isn't he married? It, it, because I think we don't think about, you know, that image isn't so you know, uh, as important as it was, you know, like, you know, uh, a leading man can be single and, you know, uh, 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 you know, 
back in the golden era, I think it was important that uh, a, a man had that, you know, uh, you know, house with the wife and the kids, Amer- all American look. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in like the fifties and sixties, I feel like now it's probably the opposite because if just to use your example, if Leonardo DiCaprio is single. It just puts more like there was a story. Um, it's one. This is very different than Leonardo DiCaprio, but there was a guy who was on American Idol, a singer. Handsome guy, heartthrob type, right? Oh, yeah. He was married, married, <laughs> and they had him hide his wife, keep his wife out of the spotlight, because it's more marketable if he's attainable in the minds. Mm-hmm. Same thing of like, if an actress is single, somewhere in the male mind she's attainable. She's attainable. She's single. And so they'll, they'll try to do that, too, because it's more marketable to be single, because in the minds of the audience, male or female, there's, there's some, I mean, realism and logic tells you that there's little to no chance, but the fact that there's one little sliver of a chance mm-hmm. might put your butt in that seat, and that's one more ticket sold. Yeah, and, you know... There are instances where it definitely goes too far, and uh, you know, and especially to the detriment of, of mental health. Uh, going to, I, I hate using this as an example because it's not his fault, but Jackie Chan had, I don't know if this is still true today, but back in the 80s, he had like, he had like an all-female fan club in China. One of them actually committed suicide when she found out he was married, and another one attempted suicide but was rescued at the last minute. So, yeah... And they're like going back to how they're employees. These actors are employees, and you know they all have to you know sell the movie and everything. Mm-hmm. It's they're kind of like uh, like steward like airline stewardesses. You know they have to protect. They have to have this image of attainability, and that's what makes you know how they sell the they sell the film. Well, uh, you can go going into music. You know, uh, years ago when uh, Michael Jackson was a. Uh, uh, child performer with Jackson Five, uh, they made they they wanted him to say that he was six, not eight, because he was cuter at six than he is at eight. Yeah, yeah, because they they wanted to, them to think that it was a six year old singing to him, not a not right. an eight year old. Yeah. yeah. So the, this uh, and put in another folklore story. This is one of my favorites. Um, that has to do with the honeymooners. Mm-hmm. So, in the beginning, um, the honeymooners was just a sketch that took place on the Jackie Gleason show. It wasn't its own show. Mm-hmm. And there was another actress, Pat something, who played Alice originally. It wasn't always Audrey Meadows. Mm-hmm. So this original actress that played Alice was blacklisted during that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought she was a commie, so she was blacklisted and Jackie Gleason had to find somebody else. So during the casting of Alice, Audrey Meadows comes in and she's, her sister is some is an, a famous actress too. I can't think of her name, but her sister was married to Steve Allen and she was an actress too. Some somebody else Meadows, but anyway, <laughs> Audrey Meadows comes in to audition for the role of Alice, and Jackie Gleason tells her, "You're too pretty, you can't have the part." So Audrey Meadows goes home. She had a friend who was a photographer, and she tells him, "Come over to my apartment first thing in the morning. I'm gonna get up. I'm not gonna shower. I'm not gonna fix my hair. I'm gonna throw on an apron and start doing housework, and you just take pictures of me." And I'll show him who's, who's too pretty or whatever not. So she takes all these photos, puts them in an envelope, mails them to Jackie Gleason, who gets them and goes, Who is this? This is, this is Alice. And they're like, Jackie, like, this is the girl you said was too pretty. 
And his words were any dame with a sense of humor like that deserves the part. <laughs> and that's how she got the part of Alice. Nice. So that's one of my favorite stories. Uh, uh, if we're doing favorite stories, did you want to do yours next? Or? I, uh, I just thought of um, something else. So, you know, go somewhat tying into what we were talking about, you know, how we, we respect these artists and everything until... And the, and the art that they produce, but then we learn these uh, horrible truths about them, you know, because we have them up on these pedestals. Sometimes the stories are are put on a pedestal, and then you find out, oh, no, that's not what really happened. And uh, two examples I thought of off the top of my head. Uh, one is the infamous uh, uh, feud, be- you know, alleged feud between uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier and Dustin Hoffman during the filming of Marathon Man. So... Apparently, uh, one day during filming, what really happened was, you know, Hoffman showed up on set, you know, hungover and, you know, completely tired and everything. And Olivier's like, what's going on? And and Hoffman said, oh, I'm going through a really messy divorce and I've been up partying, you know, the past couple of nights. And Olivier looked at him and said, try acting, it's easier. It, in that context, meaning it's just bury yourself in your work, focus on your work, and that will be more therapeutic than you know, giving yourself a headache. Mm-hmm. But people to this day have taken that story out of context and they, bearing in mind that Olivier was very classically trained and Hoffman was very method, they think what happened was that Hoffman was doing a scene where he had to look tired and instead of acting it, instead of pretending it, he just stayed up late and deprived himself of sleep for several nights until he was barely conscious and Olivier looked at him and said, try acting, it's easier. <laughs> and uh, I think the reason that this this fake folk tale has persisted all these years is because people are fascinated by the this ongoing rivalry between classical acting and method acting, especially all the publicity that method actors get for, you know, for throwing themselves into the role and treating their co-stars like dirt and it always being in character and everything else. And it's, even though it's not what really happened between Olivier and Hoffman, it seems like the kind of thing that could have happened. And that's why they love the story so much. And uh, the other story I was going to mention, uh, which has since been debunked, rumors persist to this day that there was an intense rivalry between Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, which... Uh, really climaxed when they did their one movie together, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Mm-hmm. There are rumors that, you know, they were always, even though they worked for rival studios, supposedly they were always comp- supposedly they were always competing for roles, they always hated each other, they always had horrible things to say, and then they do this movie together, you know, they probably got forced to do it together because they hated each other, and uh, there was a scene where Betty Davis had to kick Joan Crawford, and supposedly she kicked her for real, and because she could, because she could get away with it, and she apologized, but not really. Uh, Crawford had just, Crawford's husband had just died, and he was like the uh, the president of the of the, the Pepsi company. So out of spite, uh, Betty said, "I want a Coke vending machine on set just to stick it to her husband." And then uh, <coughs> there's a scene where Joan's supposed to be unconscious and Betty's supposed to lift her out of uh, out of her wheelchair onto, onto something else and she told Joan before the take I have a really bad back so don't be a dead weight and Joan's like okay and then she stuffed weights in her pockets just to be oh, as heavy no. as possible and and Betty had to be rushed to the emergency room for restraining her back well this story has been going on for decades. People still think that those two absolutely hated each other, and they even did a, a mini series about it uh, called "The Feud," where yeah. I, with uh, Susan Sarandon and uh, Jessica Lang playing the parts, and none other than the late Olivia De Havilland, who knew both of the who knew both those actresses personally and worked with worked with Betty at least once. You know, she was still alive when the mini miniseries came out, and she's like, "This is a load of bull." So, and she explained, there was never any rivalry between the two of them. It's not that they liked each other, but they didn't hate each other. They worked for completely different studios, so they weren't competing for the same roles because they didn't make any of the same movie. They didn't try out for the same movies because they weren't working for the same studios. And when when they did that movie, 
Uh, they weren't forced to work it together. I think it was offered to Crawford first. And she said, you know, I think Betty Davis would be great for the other part. And they offered it to her and she accepted it happily. They did not hurt each other on set at all. There was, you know, there were no accidents. There was no Coke vending machine or mm-hmm. anything like that. And, uh, you know, they, you know, they didn't get along famously, but they didn't get along badly either. And the only two, you know, little bittersweet things that happened was, uh, uh, one was after filming. Uh, they were they were doing an interview where Betty cracked a joke that you know, that somebody wanted two old hags for the movie. And after the interview was over, Joan was like, "Never call me an old hag again." And of course, the other one was the Oscars. The very next year, Betty was nominated for Best Actress, and um, Joan apparently called all the other nominees and said, "If you." You know, to, well, the ones who weren't going to appear at the Oscars in person and said, if you win the Oscar, can I accept it on your behalf? And mm-hmm. I forget. It was Anne Bancroft won for The Miracle oh, Worker, and uh, she wasn't at the ceremony, so uh, Crawford, you know, I guess Betty was, like, waiting in the wings in case she won, and she felt Joan's hand on her shoulders, and if you'll excuse me, I have an Oscar to accept, and people thought that that was hers. Hey, ha-ha, you didn't win, you will. <laughs> but no, apparently that... So this whole story, you know, there was no rivalry or anything, but people love telling that story because it's even more fascinating than the movie itself mm-hmm. or, or any of, of the other movies they made. You know, Everybody just loves hearing this story about how these two great legendary titans were on this battle to the death to determine who was the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, well, the story that uh, I... It's not so much that I like it. I just I feel that it needs to be told it, uh, because it, it's it, it's not very humorous, but it's it's pretty. Uh, but I I think it, when when I heard it, I was just like the I was just like that is a powerful coincidence, mm-hmm. and that is the story of the cursed script. Okay. Now uh, it kind of ties into. Uh, some an episode, some episodes that we had done before about biopics. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the late great John Belushi was approached to do a biopic about uh, the comedian uh, Fatty Arbuckle, and this was when John Belushi was right at the height of his fame. He did Saturday Night Live, Blue, uh, Animal House. Blues Brothers, he was the hot ticket, and uh, uh, he he had gotten the script, and uh, then, uh, uh, as we all know, he died of an overdose, mm-hmm. and that script was in his room when he died. Now, a couple years go by, another comedian is approached by the name of Sam Kennison. Sam Kennison has done a lot of television. He's a, a successful stand-up. He's done uh, a couple movies here and there. And this was going to be his first. And he was approached to do this Fatty Arbuckle biopic. Wow, okay. And uh, he, uh, it, it was going to be his first, you know, uh, leading role. He was going to, uh, he had just come back from, he had problems with addiction before. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, previously, and it was going to be his, you know, you know, his, uh, you know, uh, step in the in the right direction. Uh, 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 it's it's said. I don't know if this is true or not, but uh, everything was in place. They were about to start. They were two weeks away from filming, from uh, filming, and he uh, he was died in a car accident. And it's it's said that that script, the same script that John Belushi had, was at his house. Okay. Uh, was was found in his house when uh, 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 after he died. A couple more years go by. Oh boy. Uh, the late great John Candy, uh, he uh, who had who was a great actor. He'd uh, done uh, dramatic work before. You know, uh, great, you know, great comic, 
was approached to do a biopic about, you guessed it, <laughs> Fatty Arbuckle. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, while he was, uh, when he was approached to do the film, he was also, he was filming Wagons East, and uh, he uh, died of a heart attack uh, on the uh, set of that film. And in his trailer was the same script that was given to John Belushi and Sam Kesson. Now, whether he had officially accepted the part, I don't know. Or he, or if he was just in talks to play the part. A couple more years go by. The late, great Chris Farley was approached. I, I don't know this story, but I knew he was coming. <laughs> and, uh, uh, Chris Farley had... a. Uh, you know, he was a, uh, a big star on Saturday Night Live. He has started making films like Tommy Boy, Black Sheep, one that you know often gets swept on, under the rug that Luke knows I like, uh, Almost Heroes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, uh, he's uh, uh, become a big star. Uh, he had just gotten out of rehab, and he was. they were going to, uh, they approached him about doing a biopic about Fatty Arbuckle. It was going to be his first dramatic role. He, uh, but the studio, even though he just got out of rehab, they wanted him to do another 90 days of rehab okay. uh, uh, as a precaution. Uh, because, you know, like we said, studio you know, movies are business. You know, they wanted to protect their investment. Mm-hmm. So... And he was all excited about doing this film. It was going to be a dramatic role. It was going to open lots of doors for him. He had a whole thing while completing rehab. Uh, He was going to to go on a diet. He was going to have a nutritionist there. He was going to have... have He he was going to work out regularly. He had a, 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 a personal trainer who was going to come... Who they were gonna let into the rehab to work out with him every you know, uh, you know every uh, every day. Mm-hmm. He was gonna get into great shape. Uh, he was gonna be clean and sober. But you know, like every addict, before uh, you stop doing, you know uh, what you've done, you wanna indulge in everything you do. So. The night before he went into rehab, he went to every rent restaurant, bars, he ate, he drank, he did every kind of drug, and he died in the hotel. He, uh, the, the night before, and he was found by the person who was going to take him to rehab, and in that hotel room, a copy of this biopic about Fatty Arbor. Mm. The same one that was given to Belushi, that was given to Kenison, that was given to Candy. A couple more years go by. Uh, another comic actor. This the, script's got a body count. Wow. Uh, by the name of Phil Hartman, who was also a huge star on Saturday Night Live, great comic, a great voice actor. Uh, he uh, had done some films, had done television. He was approached to doing a film, doing a biopic about Fatty Arbuckle. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 Phil Hartman was murdered by his wife. and uh, With the script. <laughs> uh, 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 she, uh, she, he was uh, killed uh, with a... Uh, she killed him with a, a shotgun, mm-hmm. and in his room, when they found him, there was a copy of a script, a biopic about Fatty Arbuckle, the same script that was given to Belushi, that was given to Kennison, that was given to Candy, that was given to Farley, mm. that was given to him, and to, to this day, that it, whether or not that film. Is still planning on being made. Whether it got made, I have no idea. Wow. Holy smoke. So, just to illuminate it a little bit more, um, 
So Fatty Arbuckle was a comedic uh, actor. In the silent era. In the silent era. He, he was also a great mentor to people like Chap, to great act, great silent Buster actors Keaton. like Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton. Yeah. And, uh, 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 Buster Keaton actually defended him. In, uh, he probably did, yeah. Uh, yeah. When, that, uh, when everything in, hit in, the fan in, in with, his, with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 that's who Fatty Arbuckle was. And they were planning on making a biopic about his life. And they, they, all these great uh, comic actors were all approached. Yeah. And then, wow, that's crazy. That's like uh, such a long line of just. Uh, uh, and that, that's why. That's why I say it's not necessarily a good story, but that's why I'm glad we. That, that's why I, I kind of pushed for this episode because that's a story that not a lot of people know. I mean, obviously, you guys wow. say you didn't. Uh, I feel it. Like, you know, when I heard it, I said more people have to know this. <laughs> So being that you brought him up, I just want to read something out of this book. So these two books I brought out here are Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon. And they're all the legendary underground the legendary underground classic of Hollywood's darkest and best kept secrets. So these books are a little exploitive and a little smutty. But I just, just to help people with Fatty Arbuckle. So there he is. Listeners can't hear it, see it, but there he is. Look up, Google him. So it's Roscoe, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was a hefty plumber's helper discovered by Max Sennett in 1913 when he came to unclog the comedy producer's drain. Sennett sized up the affable 266 pounds Roscoe and offered him a job on the spot. Arbuckle's butterball appearance and bouncing agility were perfect foils for Senate's brand of film farce, mud and mayhem, pratfalls, and custard pies. Um, we are about time to get to our recommendations. Uh, I'll throw mine out there, which has a lot of folklore, a folkloric scene that is still debated amongst people who wish to debate it, which takes place in the Marx Brothers movie Animal Crackers. So... In this movie, there's a big, ritzy gal, um, like gathering at a big mansion. And this gathering and party is based around this painting. And there's all sorts of hijinks going on. And Chico and Harpo are going to steal the original painting and put up a fake for this bad guy that they're working for. So, in a scene where there's a thunderstorm and all the lights go out, Chico and Harpo realize this is our chance to steal the painting. So, the, the scene was shot completely dark. All you see are the shadows of the men stealing the painting and taking it down. Now, what's also important to know is at that time, these movies were highly overdubbed. Actors would go back and record their lines and they'd be plugged in specifically in this scene which was shot in the dark only showing the silhouettes of the Marx Brothers so it is huge folklore that nobody has an answer to the brothers themselves wouldn't say a word they let it live thankfully but the story is that all four brothers switched outfits and were playing each other in the scene in the dark so like, I think it was like Groucho was dressed as Chico and this uh, Zeppo was Harpo and Harpo was, and they, and they did that for this scene. Now, I tend to believe it partially because I want to believe it, mm-hmm. partially for a second reason, real quick. So the Marx Brothers shot five films for Paramount. Then they changed studios and they worked under MGM. So, MGM wanted the Marx Brothers movies to be a little more cohesive and a little bit less chaotic than its predecessors were. So, what they did was they picked scenes from the movies 
and had the brothers do them on stage in front of a live audience so they could get their timing down to time their laughs. Because coconuts and animal crackers were plays before they were films. And that's why those films read so well, because they had their timing down. Mm -hmm. So they would put the brothers on stage just for scenes, not even the whole movie, and they'd get their timing down, and the audience would get these little sneak peeks. So during one performance, the brothers made a bet with Chico's daughter. And they said, I bet you if we play each other, no one will notice. And in this scene, which eventually made it into Day at the Races, which was their second MGM picture, um, the famous scene between Groucho and Chico, Groucho's trying to bet on horses and Chico's just giving him the rundown, or the rubdown, um, and just taking advantage of him and selling him like unnecessary betting books. Um, one night on stage, they switched, and Chico played Groucho, and Groucho played Chico, and Chico had the mat, and nobody noticed. Wow. <laughs> so, that story is true. So, to, to think that they all played each other in the darkness of a scene in Animal Crackers is pretty plausible. Mm-hmm. And that's my spiel. Okay. Uh, in regard to uh, folklore movies, I think, uh, for lack of a better option, I'll just go go back to the one I mentioned earlier, The Omen. Uh, whether or not you think that you know the horrible events that took place during the filming you know, were brought on by evil spirits or just a phenomenal coincidence, I think it's the finished product is one of, if not the greatest supernatural horror thriller of all time. It has a Great acting by Gregory Peck and a young David Warner. Uh, the kid playing uh, little Damien is <laughs> frightening. <laughs> the, it has a haunting score by Jerry Goldsmith, including the original song they wrote for the film, Ave Satane, which means Hail Satan. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll be, to your shame, humming that theme <laughs> when it's over. <laughs> and it, it is... If you're into horror, it is the stuff that nightmares are made of. Wonderfully paced, wonderfully acted, wonderfully shot, everything. Nice. Andrew, what do you got? Oh, uh, when we think about uh, films that you know have that, uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know if you want to say, like like the story uh, uh, like behind it. Uh, I, uh, uh, one of the films that uh, I, I think of is uh, it's actually a comedy film uh, starring uh, Richard Pryor and uh, uh, Gene Wilder uh, called Stir Crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's uh, 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 just a great comedy. Uh, I, I call it a, a buddy comedy. Uh, if uh, 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 Craig T. Nelson, it's about uh, these two friends who they live in New York. Uh, Richard Pryor, char- Richard Pryor's character is an actor. Uh, Gene Wilder's character is a uh, playwright. But you know, right now they're working as day jobs. You know, until they're you know gonna make their uh, careers uh, come true. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're they're in New York and they're uh, trying trying to make their dreams come true. And then. Uh, they they get the idea they're gonna go out to California, you know the you know pretty women and uh, you know they're gonna uh, so they you know get get what money they can you know they get in their van and they you know make their way out to uh, California uh, and uh, oh uh, well uh, but and they pick up odd jobs. Uh, 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 they pick up an odd job as a bank, and uh, then uh, as these like mascots, uh, and uh, while they're on their lunch break, two other guys steal their costumes and rob the bank. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and they're you know in you know the middle middle of America, you know like along the Bible Belt where uh, you know you rob a bank is you know just as bad as committing a murder. Mm-hmm. They get sentenced to life in prison, and uh, uh, and uh, you know hilarity, but. You know, getting into the stories behind the stories, there's just so many sort of about how about how Richard Pryor was there. They would say he would uh, go off and uh, like they, they were supposed to. They would call him, you know, because he was running late, and he'd say, "Oh, I, I'm in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm in. Uh, uh, I I just got married." <laughs> they they would have to uh, bring him. They would have to go get him back. The company's lawyers would have to get the marriage annulled, and all this stuff, and uh, and, uh, and just the uh, all the uh, you know, added hijinks that he uh, he brought, you know, into uh, the film. There, uh, you know, it, it was said that during like one of the final scenes that. Uh, uh, it was believed, and, and Richard Pryor, and when, whenever you you hear Gene Wilder talk about Richard Pryor, you know, they they only did like three films together. I, I went, so they weren't like a comedy team or anything, mm-hmm. but they worked well together. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, they uh, and this film is just uh, you know, uh, but you hear uh, so many stories about. Uh, you know, Richard Pryor uh, filmed the scene, you know, under the influence, or uh, uh, Richard Pryor uh, 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 improvised this. You know, just all the, you know, added, uh, you know, stories uh, from, you know, what happened. But I think it was actually uh, they they made like a, a short film, like of all the things that, uh, not just on that film, but all the films that he worked on. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, it's uh, a 1980s film, uh, Stir Crazy. Uh, highly recommended, great comedy. Yeah. yeah, very good. Yeah, it's one one of the good ones that they did together. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Was, I I I kind of I I usually uh, rank that on some of my favorite comedies. Me and Final Flame, yeah. Yeah. And it was a similar similar problems. That wouldn't let Mel Brooks cast Richard Pryor in, in Blazing Saddles. They let him be the writer, yeah. but he was just he had it, too much of a wild reputation yeah. for the studio to be like, all right, you can cast him. Yeah. So yeah, that's about it for this episode. But before we end, I want to say something a little off topic, but I was thinking about it earlier today, and this is by no means our last podcast, but I was thinking about this. Earlier today is that um, I got involved in theater at ESU in 2012 is when I got very heavily involved in theater. Mm -hmm. And here we sit in 2022 and we're still friends and we're still hanging out and we're still talking movies and I'm just very happy about that. And I want to let you guys know and I'm very glad that we have been able to chronicle these conversations, which we were having back then. (laughs) But I'm glad we're able to chronicle them now on this podcast. So thank you guys both for coming on every time you've come on and for the future times coming on. Because I'm glad to still have you guys around. We we feel the same way. Because you you hear about all these, (laughs) going with all those urban legends (laughs) you were just talking about, there's so many actors you you hear about. Oh, they went to the same school together. They went to Yale Drama together. They went to Juilliard together. They were classmates. They were roommates. Whatever. But how many? How often do they get to work together? How often do they get to actually be friends together? So mm-hmm. we're we're lucky in that regard. Exactly. I yes. agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, there's you know, no, you know, no two people I'd rather talk films with or be able to call my friends and you know. Uh, all those days back in ESU, uh, yeah, we, I think we agree we haven't, uh, we didn't learn everything we wish we learned there, but, you know, at least we made some good, great friends. I yes. agree. I agree. So uh, that makes me happy too. 
So cool. Thank you guys for doing this episode mm -hmm. and all the other ones. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Planet Shivers podcast. I want to thank Luke and Andrew for coming on again and spewing more of the great movie, movie facts that are running around in their brain. It's always good to talk to them, hang out with them. Like I said, just at the end of this episode with them, we've known each other for a while. And um, old friends are important. We're all going to disagree, and every once in a while, we're all going to get sick of each other. It happens. We're going to get bored with each other, tired. We're going to want a break. But mark my words, listen to me here, that old friendships are a different type of rewarding because you can always pick up from where you left off. It's deeper. There's more depth there. You can go back. Luke and Andrew and I go all the way back to the early 2010s when I started running around trying the college thing and uh, they stuck as friends and they're a couple of good guys thank you again to them for coming on the show I hope you enjoyed listening to the show I hope you got something out of it and again keep your eyes and your ears peeled I got a lot of fun podcast ideas some of them are going to go down the rabbit hole some of them are going to be a little more interview based going to be going all types of directions but you're going to be hearing from a lot of old stars of past episodes and you're going to be meeting a lot of new people as this goes on so stick with me you're going to enjoy the journey until next time oh wait a minute i forgot to say you could find this episode and all other podcast episodes on all major podcast platforms as well as youtube I'm everywhere. Like I said, next stop, the world. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of somebody else. I'll talk to you on the next episode.